Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. Yay, so good to see you again. Good to see you. We first connected after uh, my speech at the school board went viral, and you were so sweet. You reached out to me and really you wanted to check and see how I was doing because having put yourself out there before you knew, uh, that that type of action and really bravery can come with a lot of pushback and a lot of ugliness and negativity. And so, um, you were checking up on me and introduced yourself and, and we connected after that. And I was so, um, blown away by the story. Like I knew, what was happening in our area. And I've, I've seen some of what has been happening throughout the country, but um, yours really struck a, a nerve with me. And um, I'm so glad that I have this platform for you to share it with my audience, because one of the things I learned after I spoke, spoke at the school board is so many people don't realize this is going on. And uh, unless you are engaging in conversations really about what's taking place in your kid's school, or if you have had experience being in that, uh, in the school situation, you may not, you may not know. And it, it's very real. And so I would love for you to share, uh, what it is that happened and what has started you on this advocate path. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on and, you know, I, I reached out to you because I know how isolating it can be when you stand in the gap for our children and the kind of vitriol that comes at you can be unprecedented. And a lot of parents aren't prepared for it, especially when they're coming from a place of love and compassion for children, all children. And I think it's a huge lie that we can't teach kindness and compassion for all without in injecting this gender ideology into our schools. And so I am a licensed mental health counselor. I am also a stay-at-home mom to three amazing children here in Florida. And prior to 2020, I was living a stay-at-home mom life. I took the kids to and from school, their after-school activities, I volunteered at their school a lot. I even ran the copy room at the middle school where my two older children went to school. And I was volunteer of the year there. That was something that I was very proud of. My entire you know, identity was wrapped up into being a mom and being the best mom that I could be. And so when COVID hit, <clears throat> like so many other parents, we were very concerned about our children, but our daughter, especially, she has ADHD and she's gifted. And so for many of these kids that can read a little bit like spectrum, you know, autistic behavior with the ADHD, she has trouble fitting in, especially when she was younger, it has gotten a lot better. She's almost actually, she just turned 17 this week. Hmm. And so at the time of COVID, she was 13, she was in seventh grade, and she had found a friend group starting in middle school that seemed to embrace her quirkiness. She is very artistic. She is very into theater. 
she was into very like fantasy type books that a lot of these kids seem to be into, like the Wings of Fire series, the Warrior Cat series. She was into anime. And so for all of these reasons, unbeknownst to us, this made her vulnerable to this particular ideology. And so, like I said, initially, we were thrilled that she found this friend group. There was a whole bunch of them, and they seemed to get along well, and just kind of the kind of like the outsider group. You know, when I grew up, it would have been like the skateboarding kids or the goth kids, right. just, you know, the kids that didn't quite fit mainstream. But I knew one day when her brain caught up with her intelligence, she was going to be, and she still is going to be a rock star. These are the kids that think outside the box that you get really interesting ideas from. And so when I started to see some red flags just prior to COVID, I started seeing changes within this friend group. The friend group became hyper-focused on LGBTQ identities. And so what that looked like was they would ask each other, well, what's your pride flag? What's your flag? What are your pronouns? My daughter would start to draw character pictures of her friends with different colors that corresponded to that person's chosen pride flag. And so you had 12 and 13-year-old children claiming to be bisexual, pansexual, non-binary, all of these identities when they really had zero experience sexually, which we don't want them to. But my point is, is they were claiming these identities and most of them had never even held someone's hand. Mm -hmm. And so that started to really be a red flag for me. And I started to have some concerns and then COVID hit just prior to COVID three of the friends in the friend group had come out of some form as transgender. And so when I was in my graduate program, transgender would describe a person who had distress over their sex. It tended to start in early childhood. It was very rare. It tended to be mostly men that experienced this. And we treated it as a mental health disorder. So when my daughter had these friends that were suddenly claiming these transgender identities, and she was using words like gender fluid, non-binary. And then there was one girl who happened to be an identical twin who was actually claiming a male identity. So all of these things that she was coming home telling me were really not corresponding to the way in which I was trained in my graduate program. So I was just kind of watching, taking it all in, asking questions, but not super concerned yet. And then in May of 2020, after the schools had shut down and we were doing online learning, she became much more anxious. There was a lot more sadness, which we thought it was attributed to the schools shutting down. That was a very scary time. I know people want to move on from it, but I really feel like that was a significant damaging time for adolescents and children. They thrive on predictability and structure. And so to have that taken away from them 
in the manner that it was and not return to a sense of normalcy for a very long time was deeply harmful. But with our daughter, she came to us in May of 2020 and said, I no longer feel like a girl. And our daughter had no previous signs of distress leading up to this announcement. She wasn't necessarily a tomboy because she wasn't into sports, but she also, you know, she dressed in normal, like kind of nerdy science kid clothes. You know, she was the girl that loved STEM and would go to science camps in the summer and just extremely, extremely bright. So she had a lot of NASA shirts and science type shirts. And every now and then she would wear a dress, but it wasn't like that was a rejection on any level. So after she told us she didn't feel like a girl, she at first said she was gender fluid. And then that morphed into non-binary. And I'm talking within weeks. So we're struggling just trying to figure out COVID and what we were going to do with school. And then on top of that, we have this added layer of watching our daughter deteriorate in real time. And so we were very concerned about her. She started, it started to escalate that summer where she was asking to be called a different name and different pronouns. She was asking for a breast binder, which for your audience is a garment that flattens breast so that it looks like there, you know, there's a flatness there, but these devices can be very harmful. They can cause breathing issues, cracked ribs, collapsed lungs. If they're worn too tight or too long, it deforms the breast tissue. So my husband and I really started to become very concerned. And we elicited the help of a mental health professional just to help us navigate this and to really focus on the other issues that we thought were contributing. So when school started in fall of 2020, like many times before, because I saw the school as a partnership, I reached out to a math teacher and let her know what was going on. It was my daughter's homeroom teacher. And I let her know we were not affirming the trans identity at home, that we thought it was directly related to her friend group and that we had sought professional help. And because we are involved in litigation, there are aspects of that communication that I can't go into. But it turned out this math teacher was the LGBTQ advocate on the middle school campus. I was unaware that there was even such an advocate on campus or why there would be a need for an advocate. So this really kind of propelled us into the nightmare that we've been experiencing now going on. This will be the fourth year. So after that initial communication, several weeks went by and I thought that they would treat it as a nickname. Like that was my whole point in emailing the teacher was to give them a heads up, letting them know this is what we're doing at home. But I, you know, I was very naive. I didn't feel like we could stop her from going by a nickname at school. I now know very differently. And a couple of weeks went by and my daughter got into the car and said, mom, I had a meeting about my name today. And they asked me which restroom I wanted to use. 
looked at her and I was like, what, what do you, what do you mean? Like, you think you're non-binary. They know you're female. You're clearly female. I've never seen a non-binary restroom at the school. Why would they need to be asking you this? And then more alarmingly, like I was super concerned that they had an actual meeting with my child that I was unaware of. So I immediately emailed the guidance counselor because, again, we were not allowed on campus. Schools at that time were very locked down. The doors were locked. You, It said, do not come inside. You had to make a scheduled appointment to even get into the building. And just to Otherwise, listeners, how old is she at this point? 13. Mm. She had just started eighth grade, so 13. Okay. And emotionally, she was 11 because of her ADHD, and she has a 504 plan on file. Those are her ADA accommodations that she, you know, gets by law that I knew they couldn't execute without my signature. I mean, they can't give her medication. They can't even show her a PG-13 movie without me signing off. So I was just, at this point in time, I was baffled. I was very confused. And I was concerned that they would be asking her a question like that without a parent present to advocate for her. Because that to me was a safety issue. So I expressed this in my email and I was immediately called back with the guidance counselor and the assistant principal. And so I I knew immediately, okay, this isn't normal. That's never happened. And they said, Mrs. Littlejohn, we cannot give you any information about the meeting we had with your child your child is now protected under a non-discrimination law. So my only recourse was to go to the assistant superintendent at the time, which I did. And I said, "I, I, I want to know what happened at this meeting. So we went back and forth with this super assistant superintendent for weeks. The violation happened within the first two weeks of school we did not get a meeting with the principal of the middle school until the nine weeks had ended. That's how long we were going back and forth this whole time, not knowing what happened, not knowing anything. And our relationship with our child at this time was very strained because in her mind, everybody was celebrating this identity. Everybody was cheering her along except for us, her parents Mm. who love her the most know her the best. And so we were finally given a meeting with the principal. And that was the first time we were shown the transgender support plan that they completed with our child behind closed doors with three adults. And the adults in the room were the assistant principal, the school counselor, and a social worker I had never met. Think about that dynamic. It, you know, for a child, that power differential, even sitting with the assistant principal, that's scary. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's a scary thing to sit with the the assistant principal of the school. But then to have two other adults present asking her questions, and they put the sole authority on my 13-year-old daughter as to whether or not my husband and I would be notified about the meeting or invited to the meeting. And the only question they asked her was, are your parents supportive? 
they didn't define that. There was no, you know, back and forth. It, that was it. And that one question excluded us from knowing that this social transition had taken place. And Lindsay, let me be clear. These, this was not just about name and pronouns. Mm -hmm. In this support plan, they asked her which restroom and shower on campus she preferred to use. They asked her which sex she preferred to room with on overnight field trips. Oh. And then they asked her, how should we refer to you when speaking to your parents? Should we use your birth name and pronouns or should we use your preferred name? So essentially you have scenarios where everybody at the school knows your child is confused, knows, knows that they are living a different, you know, a double life, knows potentially they are experiencing some severe psychiatric comorbidities, which many of these children do. And the only people in the dark are the parents. Okay, so I have, I'm, I mean, I've heard this story before, but it wasn't to the extent I'm hearing it now, and I'm just a bit aghast. Um, there's a few things I want to ask. Okay, so what law were, did they cite that gave them some sort of protection to hold a meeting with your vulnerable 13-year-old who... Uh, as you said, is was more like a, the maturity of an 11 year old at the time. What was the the law that they cited? So interestingly, when we met with the principal, we had been asking the assistant superintendent all along, we would like to see the legal justification you are using to meet with our minor child without our knowledge or consent. We continue to ask that question and we asked the question, at the principal's meeting as well. We never got a response, but then we're mailed. We were finally mailed a copy of this LGBTQ guide. It was about 38 pages long. And apparently it had been created back in 2016. And it's called a guide for a very specific reason. Because if it's a policy, it has to go through school board approval. Mm. But a guide can be used as a de facto policy. They called it big P, little p. So when I kept saying, well, you have this policy, they would correct me. They say, oh, no, it's not a policy. It's a guide. And I kept, you know, I kept wondering, why do they keep correcting me on that? And that's why. And so after the meeting with the principal and we were shown this guide, who clearly this guy painted all parents to be an enemy and a potential danger to their child. There was a Q&A within this guide that basically said a child exhibits LGBTQ behavior. Do you notify the parents? And the answer was no. Outing the child to a parent can be potentially dangerous and make them homeless. So they were presuming all parents to be a danger to their child with no due process, and then using that presumption of danger to unilaterally cut parents out of these gender support plans and these social transitions that they were doing. And I wanna be clear with your audience, I was never a danger to my child, number one. Number two, 
these, these support plans, it is not a neutral act. Social transitioning is a psychosocial medical intervention that schools were grossly unqualified to be doing in the first place. And when we did a deep dive into this, we realized Leon County was not the only one that had these LGBTQ guides. There was at least 13 to 14 other counties that had these same guides with the same narratives. And you asked about the law. So in our particular guide, they were misinterpreting FERPA. They were claiming that FERPA gives a child the right to privacy from their parents. That is not true. And at all these roads of these guides led back to an activist organization called Equality Florida. And there's you know different types of these all over the nation, but Equality Florida was the main driver of these guides into our public school system and the private school system. But they had created in 2016 a whole department within their organization devoted to safe and healthy schools is what they called it. And so they would go into the schools under the guise of non-discrimination and anti-bullying. And they even had a checklist, like how best are you serving your LGBTQ students? And based on that checklist of what the school was and was not doing, they would then make recommendations. And some of those recommendations would be having a support guide, ensuring your teachers and school counselors were trained in how to do a gender support plan, ensuring that under no circumstance was this ever told to the parents if the child did not agree. So all of these things were put in place by Equality Florida, who was offering to train everybody from the cafeteria worker to the teachers to the admin. And this went on for a very long time before it was brought to the service. And now we're seeing the same types of policies all over our country. And we even, you know, there was even a lawsuit filed recently in Colorado, which is exactly what I was concerned about. Two things I was really concerned about. I was concerned about a child living a double life and that becoming such a burden that that in itself made them <clears throat> want to harm themselves. In January of 2022, that happened in Clay County here in Florida a 12-year-old girl attempted to hang herself on school property. She had been meeting for months with the school counselor, unbeknownst to her parents. And thankfully, they stood up and filed a lawsuit. And their child, you know, they, of course, pulled her from public school. The other case that's more recent is out of Colorado, where a young girl on a field trip found herself sharing a bed with a male student. And so thankfully, her mother was on the field trip with her, not in the room, but on property. So she went in the bathroom and called her mother and told her what was going on. And her mother was able to intervene and get her out of that situation. But I have been contacted from parents all over the country who did not speak out. 
because they felt isolated. They felt alone. They felt ashamed. They felt like the whole system was built against them and or their child was so embedded in this ideology that it would have really negatively impacted their relationship with their child. So they stayed silent. Going back to that story, because that is uh, unbelievable, where the, the, the girl found herself uh, sharing a bed with a boy. Was that because the boy, biological sex boy, identified as female and was therefore placed in a room with female students? That's correct. Mm. Wow. And, you know... What I think I think I've talked about this several times before, and I know you and pretty much every parent and educator uh, I've connected with can agree um, that while we can understand a lot of these things start with good intentions, and we want every student to feel safe. Okay, so if they're they're not feeling safe at home, I was a LGBTQ advisor. Um, I understand the need to want to provide a space, safe space in school. But the moment we start to put a rift between the student and parent uh, as educators, as, as people in that system, we are overstepping. We are putting a divide that is only going to further complicate things. And I don't care if the intention is pure. That's the end result is it's not good. And, and then you have situations like uh, the young girl who, who almost took her life because she was leading a double life. Um, oh. Right. And, I, you know, and I, I hear what you're saying, and I just want to push back a little bit on what you said. Because, you know, as a mental health professional, the whole school should be a safe place for every child. We shouldn't have to indicate through shiny rainbow stickers that some place is a safe place. You know, I think that I agree the intentions were good. I mean, I was the counselor back in the 90s that had the upside down pink triangle on my door. I now realize, and maybe it was more necessary then because there was more, you know, discrimination happening. So I'm not saying there was never a time and a place for that, but elementary schools, and our middle schools and our high schools, those should be free of bullying for any reason. We should not carve out all of these exceptions. And especially when it comes to presuming parents to be the enemy. Every state has mandatory reporting laws as they rightfully should. So if any teacher or counselor thinks a parent is abusing their child, they are mandated to report that. You can't presume parents to be a, a danger and then systematically keep them from information that is negatively potentially impacting their child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. It's one of the things that has dawned on me in the last few years. When I stepped out of the echo chamber that is education and am now completely uh, approaching education as a parent, um, my perspective of uh, the the safe space and the um, GSA advisory groups has shifted a lot because as you said, a school is supposed to be safe for all individuals, no matter what. Um, and providing a space that 
further divides students can, um, in addition to have any kind of disconnect with, with the parents, um, what I have seen with my own two eyes and experience is it, it actually creates more division, no matter the intention. Division among students, division among uh, parents and students, uh, division among educators and, and the way people believe that uh, those topics should be handled at school. And I, it took me really stepping outside of that space to see it completely and purely from a parent's lens. And so uh, for, for educators that are listening, um, the best thing you can do is put yourself in January's shoes and, and how you might approach a, a student who seems confused um, and, and you know needs somebody, how you may have initially felt drawn to help them. Um, these are the kinds of things that are happening more often than not. And I, I would love for you to speak to as well, um, because I, I know you had pushback when you bravely spoke out about what was happening with your daughter, which is crazy to me. Anybody who hears your story and has anything negative to say about your stance is wild to me, but that is, that is where we are in society right now. Um, but I, I know after I spoke out about the things we were seeing in our district, uh, I had so many people messaging me and sharing their own stories. And so uh, what was that like for you? Um, you know, not the pushback, but realizing that, wow, this is actually helping, happening uh, mm -hmm. in far more places than I imagined. Well, intuitively, I knew our case could not have been isolated just based on the, the brazen way that the district responded. We tried very hard to resolve this issue with the district. I, you know, it wasn't even in my mind to contact attorneys other than to just understand what my parental rights were. I, I didn't even know is what they did legal. Can they meet with my child? That doesn't seem right. Like I just was struggling initially to even understand what my rights were as the parent because we trust the school, right? If they say, you know, there's some kind of law and, you know, and I think going back to what you said in terms of being in that environment, had this not happened to me personally, I may have thought, well, clearly there must have been something else going on with that family. Mm. Clearly that that's not, that can't be the whole picture because we don't want to believe that an institution we are trusting our children to every single day could possibly do this without good reason. Mm -hmm. I can promise you they did it without thinking, without applying any kind of critical thinking skills to this. And it was never about the safety of my child. Back to that word safety. This is really important because that word in itself means different things to different people now. And what struck me is this was all under the guise of keeping children safe. If it was really about keeping children safe in these support plans, they would have been asking that child, have you had thoughts of harming yourself? Are you being abused at home? There were no questions about that child's safety. 
The other issue with the word safety is that word has now been hijacked by activists because in some states it is now deemed unsafe or abuse to not affirm your child in any transgender identity he or she chooses. And what I want to convey to your audience <clears throat> is that the vast majority of the kids proclaiming trans identification today have multiple comorbid mental health issues. Many of these girls, especially because it's a lot more girls that we're seeing than boys, there are boys caught up in this, but I know a lot more about the girls because of my own experience. Many of them have a history of sexual or physical trauma. They have a history of self-harm and eating disorders. And the moment they claim the transgender identity, oftentimes what happens, happens is called diagnostic overshadowing. Stephanie Wynn talks about this a lot, where the trans identity becomes the sole focus and all of these other issues mm get swept under the rug, not explored and not resolved. And sometimes these, these girls and their parents are even lied to and told, well, all of these will work themselves out once you transition. And so you're taking an otherwise healthy child with pretty significant psychiatric issues, and now we're placing them on a path of medical transition, which will make them a medical patient for life. And so once I pulled back the curtain of the things that my daughter, I mean, she was so cavalier about talking about puberty blockers and hormones and, you know, they call it top surgery, not what it really is with it, which is a double mastectomy. So they have all these real cute euphemisms. I mean, my daughter was talking about her body as if it was a Lego piece, like she could just take parts on and off. I mean, there was, there was an, a real disassociation from her breast, from reality. And so a lot of the parallels I saw with her very much resembled anorexia and the self-loathing that can sometimes happen with that diagnosis. I think that's such an important point to make because as an educator and a GSA advisor, um, the, the theme amongst my students coming in, um, in the last few years when I was working, because that's when I started to see people saying they're non-binary and, you know, it, it wasn't the traditional GSA groups I had been accustomed to when I first started teaching where it was really like, yeah, I, I've been gay since I was, you know, as long as I can remember, and this is my identity. It was, um, students who identified uh, with a number of, whether it was ADHD on the, on the spectrum or um, as I used in education, the ACEs score, the uh, adverse childhood, uh, ACEs, adverse childhood effects. Um, and and the, the higher the ACEs score um, and the more trauma they had experienced, the more likely they were to be uh, in, in GSA. So there was always a correlation with uh, a lot of stuff going on with this particular student. And as you said, your daughter was celebrated at school. Um, and it, 
it is a, what I'm seeing is this sense of empowerment um, stemming from a place of total confusion. Um, but it's, they're given this like badge of, okay, here's a tribe you can belong to. And when you are in middle school, uh, or even, uh, high school, you are looking for a sense of belonging. And, and so I think it's one of the easiest ways that kids have fallen prey to, uh, adopting these ideologies when, um, you know, as you said, in your career, this was uh, treated as a, a, a gender dysphoria. And so right. when did you see the shift, um, you know, even outside of your daughter's situation, when did you see the shift from uh, how this was previously uh, discussed and handled to the way it is today? That's a great question. And it's a really important question because part of the narrative that's being pushed is the reason why there's such an explosion of young people claiming trans identification now, it's because it's more socially accepted. That is nonsense. That is complete nonsense. Because if that were the case, why are we not seeing the same exact numbers in the people that have been holding back all this time, waiting for social acceptance? There's not you know, a high rate of 40 year olds and 50 year olds and 60 year olds, you know, lining up at the gender clinics and going to Planned Parenthood for their testosterone. Right. That is not happening. It's disproportionately as compared to. Completely. Yep. And which, which lends itself to a social contagion, just as we have seen with anorexia, self-harm, bulimia, you know, women in particular are very vulnerable to social contagions because of the way that we socialize. But my population that I worked with back in the late 90s and early 2000s before having my daughter was adolescents and young adults. I never had one client struggling with confusion over their sex. I never heard the word non-binary until my, my daughter brought it home. We were not trained in that. And I went to a very you know, diverse, very inclusive university that trained us in those types of things. You know, you don't say handicapped, you say person with a disability. So like there was already this kind of intentional um, language around making everything feel safe and inclusive. So why, if this has been around forever, why weren't we trained in that in the early 90s, early 2000s, or late 90s? But I have spoken to other doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, and they all say the same thing. This was a non-existent issue. Therapists could go their whole career never having a client come in saying this. And, you know, there's a lot of conflation even with GSA clubs now, you know, GSA used to be Gay Straight Alliance. Now most of them have morphed into Gender Sexuality Alliance, Genders and Sexuality Alliance. So it's important for your audience to know 
there is a huge difference between sexual orientation and what kids are being taught is gender identity. And I use that in quotes because I don't believe we have a gender identity. And I believe that sex and gender used to be synonymous. And now they have extracted gender and made it its own thing. And so kids nowadays are being taught your gender identity is your internal sense of gender. Only you know it. You can choose to be a boy, a girl, neither, or somewhere in between. That is not based in science. And ultimately, it's a lie. The second lie that this entire ideology is teaching our children is that you can become the opposite sex through puberty blockers, hormones, and surgeries. And so, you know, I've said many times, and I think maybe you feel the same way, if this were just something kids were exploring without the medicalization aspect, through clothing, hairstyles, you know, what have you, I would not be sitting here talking about this. Right. It would just be uh, like a tomboy, you know? Or just, you know, kids finding themselves, have kids having an identity crisis, and like you said, having that desire, that deep inner desire we all have to find acceptance within a peer group, that is not uncommon. That is a very common part of adolescence. What's uncommon is how we are now medicalizing this issue and telling these children, if you are uncomfortable with your body, it may be because you're trans, and this is part of your trans journey. And so they, if you talk to a gender doctor, you will inevitably hear them say, we follow the child's lead. When else in medicine, where else in medicine do we follow a child's lead to irreversible harm? And so when I saw that they were chemically castrating boys, sterilizing girls, many of whom are on the autism spectrum, cutting the breasts off of girls as young as 12 years old, I could not unsee that. This is a mental health issue. It should have never been normalized or depathologized. And this is ultimately going to create a wave of irreversible harm on young people that we are just now starting to see these kids come out of. And we're hearing from detransitioners more and more, but we're also seeing success stories like my daughter, where parents are able to walk their children through this confusion. There is another treatment to this confusion that does not involve radical, invasive, medical, irreversible procedures. And that is watchful waiting giving the child the space and the time that they need to mature, their brains to fully mature, and to really figure out who they are. How does your daughter see herself today? She is free of any confusion. It has been terribly difficult for her, not only to have this experience in the school create the wedge that it did between us. But then to have us go public with that story, you know, there's a lot about what happened with her that I don't go into. 
That is private. That is her story to tell if she ever wants to tell it. But I can tell you, this is some of the darkest experiences I have ever seen. And I have now spoken to hundreds of families and our stories are all eerily similar. And it's, it's heartbreaking because what the schools are doing is they're affirming the self-hate and self-loathing that a lot of these girls have for themselves and their bodies. And that is not the body positive message we should be giving these girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's, yeah, I just need to pause for a second to wrap my head around. You're doing a fantastic job, January, and I'm just like, I'm so blown away by all of this and how um, deep it goes. And I'm just trying to figure out in the time that I have you uh, what I want to um, cover. I know. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Like, it's so hard to wrap your brain around it. And I even, when I was like slowly starting to tell people what was happening, we have family members that are very liberal, left-leaning. I I had to like sit them down and it's almost like I had to spoon feed it. And my husband's aunt said to me, and I had everything laid on the table. I had Abigail Schreier's book. I had evidence. I had, um, I had the studies showing that the vast majority of these kids would grow up, many of them to be gay adults. If we just give them time that most of these kids will desist in their distress That's going back to like Dr. Singh and Dr. Kenneth Zucker's research. And she said, January, if it weren't you telling me this, I wouldn't believe you. She said, this is so unbelievable. And when I showed her, because she's, um, she has a degree in developmental, uh, I think she was a speech pathologist or some kind of like physical therapist, but So she understands early childhood and brain development. And when I showed her like the gender unicorn and I showed her these books that were intentionally creating confusion Mm -hmm. in young children, because very young children, they are impressionable. We know this. (laughs) They believe in the tooth fairy and they believe in Santa Claus. And so they look to the adults in their lives to help them make sense of the world and to tell them the truth. And so when you're telling a very young child, and that's what's so scary about where this has gone, is we have states like New Jersey, California, Oregon, Washington, and then some up north as well, where this gender ideology, this notion that you choose your gender, it has been infused into K through 12 curriculum. So, you know, even though we have laws in some states that have passed protecting children from these medical interventions, because they can't consent, they don't have the maturity, they have no idea what they want in 20 and 30 years. They don't have the ability to do that. But even with those laws, the faucet of gender ideology has not been shut off. And so we are still going to see 
children becoming confused because it's really been injected into every aspect of our culture from our media to our, you know, in some circumstances, our school through SCL, the sex ed curriculum, the GSA clubs now, unfortunately, have been injected with this ideology. So I just, I want to be clear that this has nothing to do with sexual orientation. This has completely different consequences from someone being confused over their sexuality to being confused over their sex. And unfortunately for many of these kids, because of the way that these identities are marketed to them, they start with a sexuality type identity. And then for many of them that morphs into gender identities. You spoke about how if this didn't lend itself to medical intervention, this would be a different conversation um, and it would just be, you know, kids being curious. Uh, Can you speak to uh, your involvement with Do No Harm, what their mission is and the work that you guys are doing? Absolutely. So Do No Harm is an organization that just started in 20. Uh, 2022 by Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. And he is a doctor that became concerned about the DEI space that we were seeing within the medical admissions and in the medical field. He felt that it was racist to treat people differently based on their race when it comes to medicine. And so as he was exploring that and starting to get do no harm off the ground to advocate for getting identity politics out of medicine, people continued to ask him, what are you going to do about the medicalization of children when it comes to transgenderism? And he, you know, initially that's not a lot of people assume that doctors know what's happening. They do not. Even pediatricians because they rely on specialists. They are so busy in their day-to-day practices that they assume that the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the Endocrinology Association, they assume that they are doing their due diligence and following high quality evidence. That is not the case in this area. And so when Dr. Goldfarb finally looked at this issue, and said, well, okay, well, let me look at what gender affirming care is. Okay, so they're using puberty blockers. Let me look at the evidence that they're using to justify use in this way. And then you discover, well, wait a second, this isn't ADA approved. Well, wait a second, we know that you're stopping puberty, not short term, forever. So when you stop puberty in a child, you're not just stopping the growth of their secondary sex characteristics because the justification of doing this is so that they will pass better as an adult. So we're already lying to the child by telling them, you know, yes, you can become the opposite sex. That's not true. Regardless of puberty blockers, hormones, or surgeries, someone's sex will never change. And if you talk to some of these detransitioners, that's what they say that, you know, they say I did, I did all of it. And not only did it not 
fix the underlying issues that I was having, I always deep down knew I wasn't the opposite sex. Mm. Like there's just something intrinsic in us that they, they know it's a lie. And that's something that my daughter has said too. And so I am incredibly grateful for do no harm's work that they have done in this space. They do advocate for evidence-based ethical treatment of gender dysphoria in children. Their focus is only children. Personally, I believe that even vulnerable adults need to be safeguarded against this in terms of better informed consent. Detransitioners, they need help. They are not getting the psychological and medical care that they need, Mm -hmm. mostly because doctors don't know how to treat their issues. We have experimented in real time on these girls and young men and are now seeing the side effects of giving them very high doses of opposite sex hormones and what that does to their bodies and their brain and the issues it causes. And then of course there's complications that come from some of these surgeries. You know, Jazz Jennings, probably the most famous of all who had his surgery at age 17 and there, God bless him. I mean, he has had so many complications because of that. Marcy Bowers, his surgeon has explicitly said children that are placed on puberty blockers will never have sexual functioning oh. ever because there's not enough skin when you don't allow the secondary sex characteristics to grow. There's not enough skin to make that pseudo vagina. So, I mean, it's not to get too graphic, but there are real consequences to what they are doing to children's bodies. So she's saying that kids who are put on puberty blockers are not going to be able to have uh, sexual functioning. That's correct. And Jazz has said in the show that he does not experience any sexual desire at all. So imagine that. I mean, look how young Jazz was when they started affirming him as a girl. And most of that, if you look at these documentaries from like the 2013, 2015, 16, they really focused hard on normalizing this idea of a trans child, that these children were little boys trapped in, you know, um, or little little girls trapped in girl, boy bodies or vice versa. But when you ask them, well, what made you think your child was transgender? It's all based on very regressive stereotypes. Like we're medicalizing a child because he liked mm-hmm. pink mm-hmm. and glitter and tutus and princess dresses. Right. But they trusted the experts. And we went from having zero pediatric gender clinics prior to 2007. 2007 was when Dr. Norman Spack brought what they call the Dutch protocol over to America. And now we have over a hundred pediatric gender clinics. I've seen it. uh, They're stopping it elsewhere in the, few places in Europe, right? Where they are no longer transitioning kids. So 
many of them, well, first of all, they are pulling away from the gender affirmation model, which means when kids would go to the, like the Tavistock clinic in the UK or go to these other gender clinics, they would take exactly what the kids were saying at face value. They said to not affirm is harmful. We are moving away from that because of the regret that is now taking place. They are realizing, okay, that was not a good idea. Harm is occurring. When you, when you affirm 100% of these kids and you're not doing any kind of differential diagnosis to explore, maybe there's another reason why this, why this child is rejecting his or her sex. That was the first thing that struck me as a clinician that was highly unethical. Our job as a therapist is not to affirm anything a client says. And then to use something as horrific as suicide to coerce parents into to putting their child on this path. Yeah. I mean, that that to me is just unconscionable. I mean, it's it's unethical, it's it's emotional blackmail that they are using. Suicide is horrific anytime it occurs. But that was a lie that was pushed to push these medical transition mm -hmm. interventions on kids. It's astounding to me that there have been so many medical professionals who have gotten behind uh, this ideology, knowing that uh, the brains aren't even formed until the 20s. Uh, I'm, I have such a hard time understanding how uh, the medical community or people from the medical community have bought into that this was a good idea. When you are talking to children who, like you said, um, still believe in Santa Claus, still believe in the tooth fairy, uh, their concept of reality is not anywhere near um, where it should be for this kind of mental medical intervention. Um, why do you think or why have you found that this has become so prevalent in, in a medical community that when to so many of us, it doesn't compute? Well, several factors have contributed. <clears throat> I think, like I said previously, most doctors did not know this was happening. They trusted people that were experts, supposed experts in their field. The other issue is the silencing that happens. So, you know, in our country, going back to the other countries that you mentioned, the UK, Finland, Sweden, France, these countries, it's not as politicized there. In Sweden, they are much more socially liberal than we are, but they were starting to see harm occurring and that the suicidality was still very high post-transition. And so these countries actually did a systematic review of the evidence. And that's really important because that's how we see, are we putting forth the best treatment available? Well, because it was politicized in our country and because you've got these big conglomerate um, groups like the ACLU and GLAD injecting a ton of money into normalizing this issue, silencing anyone who speaks out against it. GLAD was controlling media, which is, I think, why we were seeing a lot of the normalization of the trans child. We also saw 
the Associated Press start to tell journalists, well, you have to speak this way about these stories. So there was a chilling effect of silencing people who spoke out against it. And a lot of doctors that were pushing back weren't getting anywhere. And a a lot of times the activists would go after them Mm -hmm. or the media just ignored them. That happened for a very long time. And so a lot of people on the left who are fighting this, they'll get a lot of blowback from their own community because they go on Fox News or they talk to the Epoch Times. And they, you know, someone like a Colin Wright, who is an atheist biologist, is saying, tell the New York Times to call me. I will speak to any publication that you find appropriate and I, you know, I will speak to them, but they're not calling. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I do call them, they shut the door on us. And so for so long now, it's only been right-leaning publications that were willing to even talk about this side of the issue. And then it just became so divisive and polarized on both sides. And we really need to get back to where we can have a real conversation about what's best for these kids. Because at the heart of this, it's these kids that are suffering. Mm -hmm. They are not culture wars. Yeah. And they deserve to grow up with their bodies whole and intact and then be able to make whatever informed choices they want to make for themselves. But children, they used to be off limits. That was something we all agreed on. We all agreed on protecting the innocence and safeguarding the innocence of children. And somewhere that even became debatable. Mm-hmm. And so that that still confuses me. At least that's how it's portrayed in the media. So even as I say this, if you look at the polling, the vast majority of Americans, even in California, do not want this nonsense in the schools. Aaron Friday is working on a California initiative, get it on the ballot, where they would get males out of female sports, they would get gender ideology out of the schools, and the vast majority of Californians want this initiative. Wow. So it's a lie that, you know, that this small minority actually, you know, everybody feels that way. That's that's just not true, and it's not what the polling shows. And, you know, you mentioned blowback. I didn't receive a lot of blowback when I went public. I was scared about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But just like you were talking about, I had far more parents reaching out to me through social media. Um, they mostly, I used my real name. I wasn't hiding. A lot of parents that went public with their stories in the last few years prior to me, they used a pseudonym because they were so scared. Mm. And I think some of that fear was to keep us silent. Like they perpetuated that fear. No question. Uh, it And unfortunately, a lot of the detransitioner stories aren't making its way out there. They are being suppressed left and right. And if you um, just look up the detransitioner hashtag on Instagram or TikTok, uh, you can look at YouTube. There are so many horrific, tragic stories from these young individuals who cannot turn back the hands of time. Um, no. Scott Nugent, who is on uh, Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman, uh, just announced that he is 
stopping activism because um, he, I think it's taking a mental toll for him. Um, and it's, there are so many, there's so many stop gaps for, for people who are, who are trying to move forward. And um, we need, we, we just need more people speaking out about it um, because it's always the, the loudest voices that uh, garner the attention. And unfortunately this cause, like so many others, if you speak out against it, you are labeled uh, transphobic or homophobic or whatever it is, which is lunacy. And so uh, it, it just takes more people who are brave enough to speak on behalf of our kids who can handle the, uh, the backlash if anybody, if anything comes. But like you said, um, and like I've shared before, there are far more people who um, are in agreement with this than, than not. Yes, no, that has absolutely been my experience. And I have never been confronted, even by people that I've seen speak at school board meetings that I know are not on my side. You know, I think it's naive to think that we can't have conversations about this, exactly. real conversations. And we have to get to that place again because our children are worth it. Yeah. It is imperative that we put them first in this in this conversation. And I think that because that we got past the name calling, like I didn't care what I was called. Like this is the hill I will die on. Call me whatever you want. And I think once you break past that fear, courage is contagious and there are power in numbers. I think the challenge is getting the busy mom and dad to understand that this issue is impacting everybody. Like, I think that they don't think it's going to impact their family until it does. Yeah. And then it's a lot harder to fix the situation. You know, I teach parents and you and I talked a little bit about this online the first time we met is we've got to be fighting it. But at the same time, we have to educate people and we have to be inoculating the younger generation from it because the faucet has not been turned off and it's not going to be turned off for some time. And so we've got to teach kids the truth from whatever perspective you're coming from, whether it's a religious perspective or an evolutionary biologist perspective. The truth is the truth. There's only one reality. And when you start to claim that there's multiple realities, that will destroy our civilization. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be willing to stand on our convictions, tell the truth, and get parents to understand that actually, yes, this does impact you. Like these Title IX changes that are coming, that will impact everybody. Everybody. And if you wait until, like if you have a vulnerable child like I did, you've got the kid that's in theater, you've got the kid that likes anime, you've got the kid that's quirky and kind of odd. If you wait until this issue comes into your home and you are not actively speaking truth into them, it is too late. Can you speak to the Title IX changes that are coming? Yes. So what's happening is they are trying to include the word gender identity with sex. You cannot protect sex and gender identity at the same time. Those two things are incompatible. And so what they are saying is any institution that accepts funding for education 
And so think about how far reaching that is. That is not just schools. That is prisons, that is universities, any institution that accepts funding from DOE will be required to include gender identity in their non-discrimination. So that has implications on parental rights because once again, you're going back to the, the pseudo policy they were trying to claim at my child's middle school. Well, it's discrimination to not affirm a child's gender identity. So we're right back to square one. And so even if you've got states that have these laws to protect parental rights in this manner, federal law often trumps state law. So we have a huge train coming that will completely dismantle the work that we have done in the last three years. And so that goes back into the sleeping quarters, um, having males in female restrooms and vice versa. We had a situation in Florida where a young lady took her top off in the middle of a boy's locker room in front of the male gym teacher. Mm. That's not good for anybody. Right. That's, that's not okay. So we're talking about privacy issues. We're talking about like what that young woman experienced in Colorado. You're on a field trip and all of a sudden you find out you're sharing a bed with a male. So it's got implications for everybody. And then we have the issue of forced speech. It would be considered harassment not to affirm a person and any identity they choose. And some of this just gets completely ridiculous. Like gender fluid, some days they feel like a girl, some days they feel like a boy. You literally have teachers having to affirm any which way this child feels on a, on a given day, using any restroom they want on a given day. This is creating such chaos in our schools mm -hmm. And it's giving an enormous amount of power to these children. I was just going to say this really aids to um, this uh, this very self-absorbed delusion of you have to uh, see me as I want to be seen. Right. Well, guess what? <laughs> In the real world, people are going to see you how they want to see you, and that's life. So you get to see yourself right. however you want to see you but the way you present yourself to the world is going to be received in all different kinds of ways. And there's nothing you can do about it. So you better figure out how to be secure enough within yourself so that that doesn't matter. It's so damaging to teach an entire generation that their makeup and the way that they think of themselves is directly affected by how other people refer to them. That is the That's opposite right. of what we've tried to teach kids forever is that what people you know sticks and stones will break my bones birds won't hurt that's right it, it well and when you're secure in your own identity you don't require affirmation from other people right and this is all about affirmation and it's really for a lot of these individuals it's a very self-centered like you said but it's about controlling others behavior mm -hmm. it is compelled speech when you are forcing someone against their will to affirm you in something that they know is not reality. And then, you know, 
with this school situation, it's even worse in other states. I mean, I feel blessed that I'm in Florida and we've got at least the right laws in, in place. Now it's up to us parents to ensure that those laws are being followed. But you've got places like Washington and California and even where you are is not good. You've got the CDC pushing this idea of community schools. I don't know if you've heard that term yet, but they want to put health clinics on school campuses. We're talking violations of parental rights in ways that we have never even seen. That is not the purpose of schools. It sounds good, but there's no guarantee at this point that the people that you are charging with teaching your child values are going to share your values. And that goes both ways. Mm -hmm. So we have got to get back to a time where schools were focused on reading. Look at the reading and the math scores in our country. We are so far behind other countries. We have got to get back to basics. Stop destabilizing these children by telling them that they can change their sex and that they need to explore their gender. No, they don't. They need to just play, go outside, get off the phones, learn some life skills, and go live their life. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be so many people who want to um, get involved in some way, uh, are curious to know what they can do after listening to you, um, listening to what's going on in the schools that they weren't aware before. Um, what would you, how would you like to direct uh, listeners to uh, getting involved in what they could do to, to start um, changing policy or, or um, yeah, I guess just any kind Sure. Of I mean, well, they, <laughs> yeah, they can, I mean, there's a lot of different ways. Like I said, you do not have to do what I'm doing or you're doing. You can have conversations. If you want to learn more, go to donoharmmedicine.org. And we have a tab um, called Gender Ideology. And then I created a page for resources for parents. So there's a tab. We, we've also created a model legislation for a detransition or bill of rights for people that want to take that to their legislators. So there's a lot of different ways that you can be impacted and involved on this issue. You know, talk to your, your pastors, talk to your neighbors, talk to your school administrators, know what the policies are. Let them know that you, you don't want your child being taught this. You don't think it's good for them. But it's really important that parents are engaged on this issue. They know what's going on at the school. Ask via email. If, a if my child or any child comes to you and wants to change their gender or their name, their pronouns, what is your policy? Get it in writing. That is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Dr. Miriam Grossman, and this is also under the gender ideology page, <clears throat> she even has a forum on her website. She wrote a fantastic book called Lost in Trans uh, Nation. She's a, a child psychiatrist, so she knows what she's talking about. She's been working with this population for years. But she's got a form letter that parents can take to their school to help protect their parental rights and protect their child from this ideology. So there's a lot of ways parents can get involved. There are parent groups like Parents Defending Education. Of course, I'm sure 
people have heard from Moms for Liberty. So there's a lot of different types of parent orgs depending upon what your political views are, your values are. Um, SEGM, Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, is a really good one to get very critical um, medical information. Like they really go through the medical research. Okay. And then Genspect is probably one of the biggest parent organizations. But all of this is listed on the Do No Harm parent resource page. And I'm happy to send you that link. Okay, perfect. We will link that in the show notes as well. Yep. Oh, January, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Um, I am just, my heart goes out to you that you've had to experience all this uh, with your daughter and as a family. Um, but it is so amazing to see how you are using it to advocate for kiddos moving forward. And uh, we're so lucky for that. So thank you. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. And I just, I hope to give parents hope. And if they're experiencing this with their own child, you can walk your child through a lot when you're coming from a place of love and compassion and who loves your child any more than you do. So I really appreciate you having me on. Yes. Thank you so much.